Leftovers Season 3, Episode 1. The Book of Kevin is over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps talking about it. The Leftovers Season 3 premiere, final season of The Leftovers. And finally, we are back at it talking about this incredible, incredible show here on Post Show Recaps. I am Josh Wiggler, and I am talking about a guy who I am potentially writing a secret covert gospel of, Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you doing, my friend? Josh, how are you? We're not departed. We're reparted. Uh, please, when you're writing that gospel, leave out the stuff about upstate New York. Yeah, oh, well, the upstate New York part is in a secret section of the book that you only have access to if you've been to upstate New York. So, Oh, wow. I can't, be, I can't wait to hear about the science you've developed to make that possible. Very complicated <laughs> stuff. Uh, it involves invisible ink and the survivor art department. Uh, but moving on <laughs> away from all of that, Antonio, how are you doing? I'm so sorry to have suddenly departed on you last week when you and I were planning on recording a preview podcast of season three but even though i was absent even though i was uh i was incommunicado as it were you were able to just like do this thing completely on your own you just you know filibustered for a good solid 30 minutes of thoughts of what's going to happen this season on the leftovers filibuster bluth yeah i i, <laughs> I you were i was channeling you of he course the whole time as well on hbo I've heard. I've heard. Yeah, I was channeling you the whole time, Josh. I was just thinking, what WWJD, what would just, Josh do? Just keep talking with no point, just ramble and talk in <laughs> circular sentences that maybe will one day connect, but they will all basically say the exact same thing. And do that for about a minute to two minutes if you can. If you try and think of the next point while you're thinking and talking out loud, but sometimes you're not going to get there. Was that an example of it? It was like a very bad minor example of it, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. No, I rewatched all of The Leftovers, Josh, which, uh, as I said on that podcast, this is a little bit of an experience, and I wanted to hit a few preview points before we got the season started, but like The Guilty Remnant, I also felt like I might be wasting my breath. And so here we are. Time jumped, Josh. We're going to get into all this, but time jumped. We are in uh, the same place, but it's slightly different, I'd say, and there's a lot to really unpack here, so I'm really, really just so excited to be talking about the leftovers final season a little bittersweet because it's the final season but if they wanted it to be and they think the story is going to really pop if they end it this way i'm all for it i'm hyped to be back i'm hyped everyone's on board uh, josh how can people subscribe to this podcast so that they don't miss an episode of what we're doing because i have a feeling we're going to record a lot of leftovers this year yeah i think we're going to be doing a lot of leftovers podcasting i mean this has been one of my favorite podcasts to do since i've gotten into podcasting i think that it's been a big one for us here on Post Show Recaps. Antonio and I, we now have a famous bromance that really did spawn from this podcast, I think. We so shot gonna, dogs together. We shot dogs together. We're going we're gonna to hit this show really hard in the final season. So uh, as it stands, we're thinking about doing Sunday night podcasts as well as midweek check-ins with feedback from you guys. So we're hoping it's very interactive. You can send us your feedback very easily. You can just tweet at Antonio and I. He's at AC Mazzaro. I'm at Round Howard. We also have a feedback link that you can send your feedback through postshowrecaps.com slash feedback and just put leftovers in your subject line and we'll be able to see it from there. Uh, as Antonio said, yeah, we would love for you guys to subscribe if you have not already done so. You can do that on iTunes at postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers. iTunes will take you to our iTunes page. And if you listen to us on any other form of podcast uh, listener, you can get us at postshowrecaps.com slash feed slash leftovers. All of your honest reviews, your star ratings, all of that good stuff really helps with visibility at the start of a podcast season. We really do want to attack leftover season three pretty hard here. So all of your help on that front would be greatly appreciated. 
Yeah, we'd certainly appreciate it because when Leftovers Season 4 comes back, we want to be the most popular Leftovers podcast, Josh. The inevitable Leftovers 2 is what I am uh, is what I will be calling about. Leftovers Lives is the podcast that we are going to be sporadically doing and have almost no resolution to, and then one day it'll secretly come back, and then it'll just mysteriously vanish again. Leftovers, the reheating. The reheating. <laughs> that is exactly what it's going to end up being. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, you know, back in, you know, in the days of season two, uh, season two of The Leftovers being one of the truly great seasons of television, I think you and I both agree on that, Antonio. Yes, 100%. Uh, we, you know, we wondered is there even going to be a season three is, or is this going to be it? You know, the ratings on the leftovers have never been great. Um, as much as it got critical acclaim across the distance on season two, it just never really broke the sound barrier in terms of like people talking about this show and this being a serious water cooler show. I think in the, within the context of the leftovers fan community, it's certainly a very, very meaty dense show that's worth picking apart. But in terms of the greater TV viewing audience, I think it's always been kind of, a little bit of a darling on its own. Um, so the fact that there even is a season three, uh, the fact that there even is a final season itself is a little bit of a miracle, Texas. You know, it itself is kind of uh, just a really, really great gift. And it gives the opportunity to, to, I don't know, for a show that's already built on a mysterious event that the creators, Damon Lindelof and Tom Parada, have promised will never be fully explained. Um, it's an, an interesting thing to, to desire closure from a show with that premise and promise. Um, but I'm excited that we're finally here at this point where we'll see if those things are on the way. And certainly based on how this episode begins and where it ends, uh, you know, closure certainly seems to be on the way. I mean, Sarah, who is this? What is happening yeah. here? Are we at Sarah, <laughs> Sarah Durst? Who has heard Durst. of her? Sarah Durst. <laughs> I guess I don't know. You know that really. Uh, that's where my head is at right now. Is is uh, you know if in reading some of these interviews with Damon Lindelof that he's given since the the episode has now aired, um, all of that stuff is unembargoed, and Damon Lindelof is referring to this as a quasi spoiler for the finale. So at least we get some Nora Durst in our finale. That's an exciting reveal here in the very first episode of season three. Yeah, I think if you if you track that out, it certainly seems like what we could be doing is seeing a finale episode that asks 13 days from this episode, basically asks, is it going to happen? Is something going to happen? Is the world going to end seven years after? Is this the speech that Matt gives in the church? Is this something that we're going to see? And maybe the quasi spoiler part is. Yeah, maybe maybe it happens. Like maybe something happens, but there are still people that are alive to the point where Nora Durst gets old, gets gray hair, changes her name to Sarah, and uh, is some kind of Australian bird wrangler. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, we don't know, but it certainly does seem like, regardless of what happens in thirteen days, Nora Durst is alive in thirteen years or more and pedaling around on a bike, e playing with birds. So there is at least some spoiler that if something were to happen in 13 days, Nora Durst will still be around after. And I think, uh, you know, you mentioning that the whole idea of, you know, th there's this time bomb, you know, that's already been started here, like this countdown clock of 13 days. You know, the, ep the episode begins, it's 14 days to go until we hit the anniversary, the seven year anniversary of the sudden departure, 13 days by the end of the episode. So there's already sort of this, you know, ticking, t you know, this ticking clock, real time thriller element to this final season of leftovers just from that premise but to also know that there will be at least some life after whatever is coming up and who knows if anything even really is coming up like a lot of that is just kind of 
baseless speculation from a bunch of these people that we're seeing on the show. Um, nothing concrete that is actually suggesting that anything is going to be happening yet. But signs in the sky, people writing in you know sky messages in their planes. It's certainly the talk of the town, as somebody uh, might say. Uh, <laughs> dot, 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 hmm. dot, 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 hmm, that there might be some danger heading for the world of The Leftovers. And whatever that's going to be, who knows? But I think that this final scene of this episode with Nora as Sarah at some time pretty decently far into the future, it looks like, being on Earth, going by a different name, suggests that something is coming this season. Something really, really game-changing is coming uh, by the end of this season. And at least Nora is going to live long enough to see the other side of it. And that's great considering Nora Durst is probably the best character on this show. Yeah, I mean, maybe the devil comes back and she just punches him in the face with her cast or yes. something, and then that's that. Yeah, I don't know. You're right. It is it is odd. Maybe something's going to happen. Maybe something isn't, right? We start this episode with that very premise. Maybe something's going to happen. We don't hear it. We don't hear the words of what's happening, but the sequence is well shot, well directed, well written enough that we know there are people who believe that they're going to be taken, that they're going to be taken into the sky. And this is in 1844. Now and we see to the- me very closely. They're about to take you. <laughs> I have a particular set of skills. Uh, and uh, these people do not have a particular set of skills in that something is going on. They don't really know. At first, we see a happy family waiting to depart together, and the gradually it wears in the family and pulls them apart. The belief of one versus the non-belief of the others. This is a real thing that happened. This is Millerism, which later, I believe, became uh, Seventh-day Adventism. And this is an incident that is ultimately known as the Great Disappointment. The time in the 1840s was a time of religious fervor, especially, Josh, in our favorite place of upstate New York. And this is where LDS Church is born out of, for example. Multiple different things are born out of this revival of religious fervor in the U.S. at that time. And this is an example of that. But yet, this is people, for whatever reason, in this case, they're putting faith in this guy, Miller, who I, I believe that's who is depicted in the episode, who's writing on the these equations on the chalkboard and trying to figure all these things out and, and saying that the, the departure is predicted or the apocalypse is predicted, whatever you want to call it. And yet it's not happening. And so we see that happening in modern times. Here we are, whatever year we are in Jardin, Texas, we see people doing the same things, thinking the same things. Matt is not putting all of his chips in and saying it's going to happen. Matt even says it might not happen. It might happen. We don't know. But he's pointing to famous religious teachings like the Bible and pointing to the number seven in all of this and pointing to stories from Deuteronomy and pointing to other books about seven years and seven years and seven years. So we're at a time once we jump forward in Jordan that is 13 days before seven years from the anniversary of the, the departure. And so the belief is that that's a key number, the number seven. And because of that, something may be happening in 13 days. And that's what all of the... The, the flyers are about, obviously, that's what all of this panic is about. That's what is, is going crazy in Miracle and things are picking up and 10,000 people might show up and on and on and on. But it, who knows, as you point out, who knows if it will actually happen or not? You know, there's so much to cover. A lot has you know happened just in one episode of The Leftovers, but a lot happened 
off-screen as well. You know, a lot happened between the events of the Season 2 finale and where the main action really begins here in the Season 3 premiere. There is a significant time jump that takes place. Uh, Three years have passed since the resolution of the Guilty Remnant coming to Jarden, which, by the way, seems like it was pretty explosive. Uh, The official story is it's a gas leak. The unofficial story that, you know, Tommy suspects and Kevin... It more or less seems to confirm here, too, is that it was a drone strike. I think you do see a missile in the reflection of Evie's glasses as well. Um, Did the guilty remnant just get bombed to death? And is that really going to be it for for Meg and Evie? Are we really not going to get anything from these characters after everything that was poured into the climax of season two? It's an open question, I think. You, You can be the man of science or the man of faith on this one. We saw it happen on screen. We didn't see it through a character's dream or something like that, we seemingly saw it through Evie's eyes. We watched it go down. And yet John Murphy thinks, listen, she's, she faked this before. She could be faking this again. Maybe Meg knows something that we don't, but it sure looked like a missile was going right into Evie's face. And Meg tells the story about Siegfried and Roy and how the tigers are always going to bite you in the face and all these things are going to happen. And uh, it sure seems like that's what happened. I I would, if I had to make a bet, if you put a gun to my head or a drone strike to my head, I would say ultimately, yeah, that's what happened. Wow. Uh, and Kevin does seem to know about it. And we you know, we have we have to point out, this was teased in season one, right? Uh, in my rewatch, I, uh, I re- remembered a lot of these things. But one of the things that, that I didn't quite remember was how serious there was this opportunity Kevin had. Kevin is waiting on a call from someone at the ATF about getting Gladys's body back, ultimately. It's just a silly thing that he wants the body because he wants some control over what's happening. He doesn't want it to be used for the wrong purposes or martyred or anything like that. He wants control of what's happening with this body, and it's already gone. It's be- we see by the end of that episode that she's being incinerated by a government facility somewhere. But in a phone call that he has with the ATF agent, the ATF agent is like, look, we can come in and just kill them. And we'd be happy to do that. We'll send a squad in and just take them out. We'll wipe them right out. So it seems like this is something that is happening in the world of the leftovers. It happens with Holy Wayne at the beginning of season one. The ATF shows up and just lights up his compound and kills Peter Berg, Josh. Yeah, I remember. I remember. And we we thought that maybe we'd be spending a lot of time with Buddy Garrity, too. I don't think that he got killed, but... That was no, he deal. may... Yeah, he may have been mentioned in this episode. There is a senator that's mentioned by the BBA uh, who likes a peanut butter sandwich and might be part dog. If Buddy if Buddy Garrity <laughs> isn't part canine, man, I don't know what a human-canine hybrid would look like. Well, I mean, his name is already Buddy, and that's just exactly. like a classic, name. classic dog name. Come on, Buddy. Who's a good dog? Who's a good boy, Buddy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so... But, this is something that we've seen happen or heard about happening on this show, which is government agencies just blowing up these people. Uh, we see it happen. We hear an offer of it happening. And then we probably did see that happen to the guilty remnant in Jarden at the beginning of this episode. So that's pretty rough, man. But I mean, all of that, all of that build up to the guilty remnant taking over Jarden and they're just wiped out in a single blast of, you know, hot missile fire in, you know, within the first, you know, 15 or so minutes of this premiere. I I I hope there's more to the story than that. And certainly John Murphy thinks so. Uh you know, John Murphy is right. uh who is one of the most changed people that we meet here in this premiere uh based on where we saw him last. He believes that Evie is still out there. She disappeared before she could do it again. Um, Erica, his wife, uh, is nowhere in sight. So, you know, maybe she's grieving this in a very, very different way. 
But I just it's 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 kind of it's kind of wild to me to consider that Liv Tyler is not going to be on this show anymore. And all that we got from her is from that opening scene in this episode. Hard to imagine that that's the case, right? We The major gap that we don't have filled in in that story is how did Liv Tyler and Evie really come together? We never saw the period uh, from when Evie first met Liv Tyler, when Liv Tyler, uh, when her character, when Meg visited Jarden shortly after the departure, and then whatever happens a year later when she shows up with Evie and Evie has coordinated this uh, kidnapping or departure, fake departure, whatever you want to call it, and ends up with the guilty remnant on the bridge with the alleged trailer full of explosives and all that. We don't know how they came together, uh, what, where that relationship was built, why the girls were ultimately in the guilty remnant. I don't need to see that. I don't need to have that answer. I don't know about you. It's not really vital for me in the context of the show, but that is a thing that's open that they have not closed the loop on. So I suppose it's possible we could see flashbacks, as you're saying, and we could see a flashback leading up to the moments that that we see the drone strike. I just I feel like this is it. You know, the other thing, too, uh, and we, we really shouldn't be quick to forget that just because you die doesn't mean you're off the show. You know, there have been people who have been killed on the leftovers who have stuck around. You know, Patty, as we, you know, is the famous example of sure. somebody who gets killed in season one and has a major arc in season two following Kevin around. Um, beyond that, there's the hotel that Kevin has visited twice that gets right. referenced in this episode that Kevin might still be visiting potentially, uh, you know, depending on what you read into the fact that he is just like strapping himself into plastic bags. It's the return of eye choke, uh, except this is like pre digital eye choke. This is just choke. Uh, so, you know, he, we're, we're seeing, analog choke, right? Yeah. Analog choke. Exactly. <laughs> so this is, this is the old school way of doing it. And who knows? Is he, is he, does he have, a, a death wish does he want to go back to the hotel and he's not able to get there or is he going and are we going to find out later on in the season at some point that Kevin has been in regular contact with the other side as it were and could that be a place where we see some of these deceased characters could he have some sort of contact with Evie and Meg there that's not impossible to me but I was just I was so shocked by that by that act of, of just wiping them out in that first um, you know modern scene of the episode really threw me off. So I'd be curious to get to get everybody else's take on, do you think that's it for Evie and Meg? Was that really just the guilty remnant can be taken out that fast? Um, maybe. It's not impossible, but I, I was just very surprised by it. Yeah, and as you point out, flashbacks are one way to do it. You have the International Assassin Hotel, which not only has Patty as a presidential candidate, but also has Holy Wayne showing up in that episode. Gladys is showing up in that episode. Characters that had died on the show. So, yeah, it's entirely possible that we'll see some form of that again, and we will see these characters. I think that there are varying opinions on if people want that or or what that will be like. Uh, I've seen many different thoughts about that. On the other hand, I think the show could pull off something like that in a totally different way. Uh, and maybe make it make it feasible. So I think we're just going to have to wait and see ultimately how that plays out. And yeah, the stuff with Kevin, man, I don't know what's going on there. I I don't want to say what I wrote in my notes, but I thought he might have been undergoing an entirely different ritual, uh, only to realize later when he's jumping into the water fearlessly and things like that, 
dude's just not really scared of dying anymore. No. I don't know if he's chasing death. I don't know if he's tempting it. I don't know if he's having fun in the moment. But that seemed to be a thing with the bag that he's done a lot. Like, that seemed like a ritual. He was very steady with it. The exact length of tape right across his knees. I think the bag was the bag from his laundry that he gotten out of the closet. Uh, and... All of that seemed very ritualistic to me. This did not seem to be his first uh, plastic bag rodeo, Josh. No, I don't think so. Or his first plastic bag karaoke ex- uh, you know, extravaganza, as it were. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, no, this is not the first. Uh, and I don't think it'll be the last. And I think we are seeing a Kevin Garvey. Right before he puts that bag in his head, he looks skyward. So. Yeah. I think he's searching for answers, which makes a lot of sense. I do think one of the things that Damon Lindelof has said a lot of in advance of this season, or not in advance of this season, in response to this episode, I've seen quotes just talking about how, imagine if the international assassin thing happened to you. Is that something you're just going to let go? You're not going to ever talk about that or think about it ever again? That is, especially for a guy like Kevin Garvey, who at the beginning of that episode, is just not into it, right? Like, he's a guy doesn't even want to sing karaoke for his own life at the end of the day uh, in a later International Assassin Hotel episode. Uh, but in that episode, he's just, it's not, he, he's just searching for anything to get rid of Patty and to fix himself. And by the end of the episode, he's ready to push her down into the well and choke her out. But it's a journey. And I don't think you can have that happen and not have it be a thing that impacts the rest of your life. And he certainly seems to be carrying, he, we see several flags throughout this episode when he's baptized josh we see his juicy butt uh and oh we, we see, see his juicy butt a couple times in this yeah episode. more than once more than once oh yeah he's baby a lot of juice They're he's, he's got a beard now like mm. uh and yeah i mean listen this is uh Kevin. this is probably this is peak Kevin. i think if you go back and look at parks and rec throw you're talking about like the bottom of the barrel throw yeah this is peak justin throw no. so yeah, yeah, man, this is what's going on. Like, he's very clearly impacted by it. He's remembering it. He's thinking about it a lot. And this is obviously something that would be on any of our minds if we ever went to the International Assassin Hotel. We'd be thinking about it all the time. Josh, we talk about it a ton, and we never went there. Yeah, we've never. Well, not, that, not, not, not on the record, at least. Uh, yeah, well, for, yeah, no, no, no comment. No comment, no comment. But I, I think that what we're driving at here with Kevin is that Kevin is a guy who has been through some stuff. Uh, as have all of these characters, you know, uh, after this Evie and Meg scene, we now fast forward in time, three years, there's a time jump. Um, what is this bias? Do you think Antonio, what do you, what do you see as the utility in jumping forward in time on this show? Other than that, it gets us closer to seven years since the sudden departure and there's stuff to play with there thematically, biblically, all of that. Um, what do you think that, what, what, what sort of, you know, what are we what are we gaining by by eliminating three years of time and resetting things and having the characters where they are now? Well, on a show that promises very few answers to the larger mysteries that it introduces, it enables the show to introduce smaller mysteries and answer those within the context of the show. So by jumping ahead three years, it's like, where's Erica? As you've already pointed out, uh, what happened to baby Lily? What happened to uh, BJ and the AC? What happened to the AC baby? We don't know what happened to Lily. Uh, what happened to Nora's arm? Uh, <laughs> you know, there are these mysteries where, what, what, what happened? How did John and Lori get together? Why are they running these psychic 
cons and then shredding the money. Like, I think we can come up with answers to some of this stuff or we can speculate on, on other of it. And what's going on with Miracle? It's no longer a national park. No more wristbands required. It's just Jardin now. So I guess what happens when you blow up the Welcome Center to a national park? It's not a national park anymore. <laughs> right. But, Without a Welcome Center, there's no, you know, not allowed to cross over. That's exactly right. So I do think that by flashing forward on a show that is so mystery laden and mystery heavy, you actually give yourselves the opportunity to introduce some mysteries and answer them. We saw that in microcosm at the beginning of last season, right? When we saw Jardin, Texas, before we ever saw Kevin and Nora in Jardin, Texas, we saw the Murphys. We saw these things and we had to fill in blanks, which we did with the second episode, which was Kevin getting there. Uh, and we had a, a mysterious pie showing up on the, uh, on the Murphy doorstep, which right. we later answered that mystery. So I think was that a raspberry up, pie when we, when we think back on it, it might've been a raspberry pie. It was a, it was, was kind of big to be a raspberry pie, but it could have been, yeah, it could have been, uh, I think it was a Virgil pie which is not something anyone wants no uh, but yeah it is uh Yikes. which has poison in it Yikes. by the way i don't yeah. know if you know that yeah. uh, on a few on a few levels potentially <laughs> yes so at the end of the day it is it is a choice that allows the show to really play with a lot with the time and i think they really reveled in it right they were rolling around in that because i don't know what moment it was for me but certainly when Lori and john murphy mouth kissed and john murphy's wearing a wedding ring and so i seem to think that maybe john and Lori are married and they're running this weird thing. That's the moment where I was like, okay, time jump. A lot has changed. Yeah. I liked that one. I felt that one was coming too. Like when he came upstairs, like, oh, I bet they're together. I bet this is a thing. I was really psyched to see that that paid off. Like that's the classic move in any sort of big time jump type of story uh, is here are these two characters that previously had nothing to do with each other that are now super close, hot and heavy, soulmates, constants, whatever you want to call them. Uh, so I, I like that. I like that with John and Lori. So that's one of the things they're running like their Ghostbusters business, uh, where <laughs> you know John seems to be taking over Eddie Winslow's old job. He is the new Isaac here in Jarden. We see some some of those hand paintings that we saw back in season two. Um, though the the fact that Lori is you know feeding stories into an earpiece essentially for John. Uh, that certainly suggests that there's no, you know, on a show where you wonder, is it, is it, is it faith or science? Like, is it magic or science? Uh, is it something mystical, something inexplicable, or is it something where there is like a factual, you know, basis in the answer? Uh, we know which one this is, you know, this is not, this is not one that has like a little bit of room for interpretation here. We do know, and yet I think that's also a great moment, right? Because it tells us that on a, on a season or on a, on a show where we're like, well, how could he have known that? That's crazy. It is showing you like, okay, let's pull back the curtain a little bit, and we're going to show you how he knew that she wanted walnuts in her salad. Maybe that's not how he knew. Maybe he was a true psychic. But this is how someone could know details like that, which in the moment they wouldn't have seemed to have known. And I think that that's something the show is always going to play with. I, I do think that they like it. We've said it in the past, 98% mystery or 98% science, 2% faith or 98% explainable, 2% unexplainable. And to that extent, the departure itself may actually have an explanation that we could at some point understand if we understood something more about science. It's It's not so much about us being able to understand it now it's about us being able to understand it with the right information with the right hindsight with the right lens and in this case 
we see the second floor of a building uh, and we see somebody in the second floor running on an earpiece. And that's an actual psychic scam that's being run. So season two looks a little different now in that regard, at least. Uh, I don't know if we're ever going to find out why Kevin didn't die. Uh, we may never get that explanation. But I think throughout the, the course of this show, you're, you've, we've always seen these signposts. And this show has not been any – it hasn't shied away from – wanting to talk about how people use faith to explain the unknown. And that's always happened. That has been a thing that to people, like to us, it was very clear there was an earthquake at the beginning of season two with the prehistoric woman. To that woman, who the hell knows what she would have thought? She probably didn't understand what tectonic plates were and shifting and fracking and all of that nonsense. So she probably made up some crazy explanation for it. And that would not have seemed so crazy at the time, but to us it does because we know science. And I think this is something the show is having a lot of fun with. I really love that we saw a very similar scene to season two, but from a slightly different perspective, but that very slight alterance in perspective altered the way that we could read that first scene completely. I, I don't know. I, where, do, where do you want to start with some of these big changes here? I mean, I guess we've already talked a bit about Lori and John and how they're together. Lori and Kevin seem like they're totally cool now, and Kevin and John seem like they are best friends. By the way, everybody's calling Kevin Kevo now. Uh, we have a new nickname for Kevo Garvey. <laughs> Is he Irish? Kevo Garvey? Yeah. Kevo Garvey. I really don't know what's going on with Kevo, but it's interesting because because think back to what we were thinking when we were watching this episode the first time with what we know at the end of the episode, which is this great conversation with John, who is also in on it, and Michael and, uh, and Matt. And they, these three people, John, Michael, and Matthew, uh, who, by the way, those, those sound uh, like familiar names to me, they believe Kevin Garvey might be a messiah of some sort. Somebody that's worth writing biblical stories about. And so, I don't know, maybe Kevo, they think, is a better name for branding or for marketing. <laughs> yeah. <It's laughs> like, a... Would you follow a savior named Kevin? I don't know. Would you follow a savior named Kevo? I don't know. I don't know. You could, you could buy into like a cuddly mascot named Kevo pretty easily. Like, I feel like the, the Barneyfication of something like that is pretty easy to see. Yeah, but uh, if his name was Jizo, I don't think we'd be Jesus. following him. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't see it happening. So, no. I don't know, man. That sounds like know. a, I don't know, that sounds like a fruit snack. Yes, <laughs> you know, or some kind of cereal. As a guy who's both of his names end in O, uh, first and last here, I can tell you it doesn't. Uh, it's not exactly something you can brand in in many ways. So, who knows? Uh, Kevo could be that. Yeah, there's some Tommy Garvey. Josh Tommy Garvey is a, is a cop now and doesn't like Gary Busey inflatables. I loved the Gary Busey inflatable. Of uh, course, it took me a second to figure out what that was, and then I was like, oh wow. Gary Busey, that's right. You're gone. And of course, there's yeah. going to be an inflatable Gary Busey here. Yeah, because of course, that's what those crazy people are, are looking for. It's not that they're assigning value to anyone uh, generally who departed. It's this very specific person they want to welcome back. So it seems like there are some people who believe that on seven years, the people are going to return. I'm wondering, Josh, is this is that somewhere you think this series could go? Are we going to see a return? Uh, you know, that that finale quasi spoiler, uh, as it's called, suggests to me, no, I, I don't think that we're going to get people back. If anything, I do think that there will be a secondary departure. And maybe this time it's going to be two percent of the population that's still here. Uh, I, obviously, something is coming. Um, that that final scene of this episode with the not Nora Durst isn't there without something really, really major on the way to set that image into motion. Um, so something's on the way, but I don't think it's a sudden return. You know, that really, that final scene really suggests the absence of people on Earth to me. 
I don't think that we're going to, you know, have that version of Nora suddenly round a corner and just like walk through, I don't know, a very, very lush and populated Sydney, for example. That would be fascinating. I don't know if we're going to get teases like this in other episodes. Uh, We only have eight in this final season. So if the finale is episode eight, then the quasi spoiler is seven episodes from now. So it won't take us terribly long to get there. I don't know if as a result that's something where we see more and more of that timeline, if you will, uh, in other episodes before we get to the finale, or we just was this just a tease to hold us over into the finale? I'm leaning toward the latter. I would be interested to see if we get more of the former. I think we're going to have a lot more of the the stuff that the leftovers turned out to figure out they, they can do really well, which are the point of view episodes. And uh, we saw that in season one and season two, a lot of these point of view episodes. So I don't know that we'll ever have a point of view episode in that timeline. And I think with other point of view episodes, likely in the offing, I'm not sure if we're going to see scenes from this future timeline at the end of others. But I, I'm really I don't know that interested. we need to either. No, we don't need to. Yeah, like we don't I, need to. I, I think, think it's enough to just know that that's where we're going. Like, that's what we're driving toward is yes. some point in the, you know, a, a decade or so from now. Uh, at some point in the future, Nora Durst does not go by the name Nora Durst. She lives in Australia. It doesn't seem like there's a ton of people around anymore, and she wants nothing to do with Kevin Garvey. Uh, if Kevin Garvey is even still alive, we don't know what does the name Kevin mean anything to you. We don't know what the context of that is at all. All we know is that there is a future fixed point that we're driving toward. Nora is involved somehow, thank God, and that's going to probably be a strong basis for the finale. Kind of a bold strategy to really sort of tip off what your finale is going to be this early on. I kind of love that. I do too, and I'm not even sure if they're tipping off the finale or the epilogue. just like a, Yeah, like is it a portion of the finale or is the entire final episode going to take place in this you know, future world. Who knows? Right. But just like to even tease any of that so blatantly uh, and so confidently in this first mm. episode. Like, that's the word is confidence. I think it really just really reflects a confidence in the storytelling and where they're going. And that's such a I it's the first time I'm saying the word. It's such a stronger position entering the final season here for Damon Lindelof than he entered Lost with, which I think lacked a lot of confidence really quickly early on. This was a very confident first episode of a final season. Yeah, I'm going to give a shout out to our boy Umberto uh, Humby here, uh, who says, does she have to go back? And where has Damon Lindelof ever done an ending like this, Josh? I know. <laughs> you, you are shifted ahead in some timeline and you realize, oh my gosh, like this is what we're dealing with. Uh, and yeah, that that was immediately... And he uh, pulled it off again. He did. Immediately <laughs> you know? evocative for me of that. And yeah, it wasn't, you know, maybe, you know, certainly not as iconic as the we have to go back moment, but this was a really, really cool twist at the end of right. the episode that that yes. there is a future point that's really going to matter. Uh, and the fact that Lindelof on his other, you know, super famous show had this move happen halfway into the series in a really iconic way for him to kind of replay that old hit and do it in a way where you didn't really know what was happening. And it was just sort of a magical moment. Um, that's really impressive to me. I love that. Yeah. And especially got Eloise Hawking to be that nun in the background. It was great. <laughs> yeah, I don't um, know. I don't know about that. No, no, no. I uh, I agree. And it's it's fascinating to think about on a meta level because the show is doing that on a meta level. But inside the context of the show, there are a lot of these cyclical references or a lot of these reference points that happen back in the episode itself. We see a lot of references overtly to international assassin. We see Kevin literally flashing back throughout. We have Josh 
entering into season three of The Leftovers, having been absent from season two of The Leftovers in this quarter, the BBA. The BBA, the return of the BBA. That was a, a big surprise to me. Me too. It was a, it was a BBA surprise. And uh, yeah, Dean is back. Dean, the big bald asshole, as Kevin referred to him in season one of The Leftovers, which we've uh, co- colloquially shortened to the BBA. He does return here. Not a, not a many happy returns for the BBA, Josh. No, it's a swift return. You know, it's a swift uh, return and a, a swift exit for the BBA, who is shot in the head by Tommy. And I and I really enjoyed when Kevin and Tommy are talking afterwards, and Kevin is like, "You really should talk to someone. Like, it's important to do that." And in my mind, all I was thinking was like, I was just waiting for Tommy to be like, hey, "Dad, you know, don't worry. This is not my first person that i've killed like i've definitely <laughs> shot people in the face before this is yeah. a thing that i've done killed a federal agent right uh yeah at the beginning of the season of the first season of the leftovers like bad things have happened with with tommy garvey We've come a long way for tommy garvey since the early days of the leftovers we have i think we no longer despise him we want to see him on our screen yeah uh, i mean a- he's still probably my least favorite of the principal characters Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I didn't realize they were all playing principals. I think that's really cool. I didn't even know there was a school in the city. That's going to uh, be that's going to be part of the twist of every everybody in the future, in the far future that Nora Durst is in. Uh, they're all just school administrators. They're all school. Well, man, that sounds like a thrilling television show. Only the school administrators survived the second departure. Is this going to walk us right into the second season of Vice Principals? Yes, that's on HBO. Right. No, no. Yeah, I love this. I love the return of Dean though because this is a season one character, and the stakes in season one. With Dean were let's shoot some dogs and then quickly it became let's kill Patty uh, Patty took care of that on her own we never we saw Dean try to kill Patty do you remember by the way Josh how Dean tried to kill Patty no remind me uh, he taped a plastic bag over her head. interesting okay yeah so the, when we talk about these reference points and we talk about the the very feeling like lost moment there at the end of this episode uh, this show is referencing not only the creator's previous works I think in a wink and a nod kind of way but the show is referencing it Itself. But I think the brilliant thing about that is when you make a back reference to a character like Dean and in season one, the stakes were what they are in this season, season three. Here we are three years later. Dude is full on nuts like he's openly firing at police officers. He's no longer just shooting dogs and showing up to town meetings and being friendly with the cops. He's actively firing on them in Jarden and he dies like these are the stakes of season three. It's not season one anymore. This guy's just not going to walk around and shoot dogs and be this weird character to Kevin. He's gone off the rails. He believes Josh. He believes in the, the dog apocalypse. The dog apocalypse. He believes in lawnmower dog. Like he believes yes. that this thing has happened. And yeah, he's this guy's got dogs in the brain, man. Like he's obsessed. But the, again, with the references, and back, he says that that the senator has dog DNA, uh, canine DNA. So this yes. is the, the dog Turian candidate. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely what's happened. Uh, and, and remember, his name's Buddy, so that probably works. But but what's funny about that, when you talk about the cyclical nature of everything and the references back and the, all this has happened before and all of that, he references this moment where he encountered this dog senator, if you will, uh, the dog Churian candidate. The Manchurian candidate's best friend. The man... <laughs> The Manchurian Candidog. Uh, He's he's referencing this and he's like, I was undercover on a hotel catering staff. 
And I'm thinking, what are you, an international assassin? Like, we saw a guy bringing orders delivery to Kevin Garvey's room, try to kill him in international assassin. And here is Dean with, by the way, Kevin kills a senator in international assassin going undercover to try to do something to somebody. And he's targeting a senator. And this is a guy who's crazy and a killer. So this is very reminiscent of international assassin and Kevin's hotel and the undercover stuff and all of that that was going on there. But it's with a cuckoo bananas guy who is dead within one more scene in the episode episode so there's a lot going on here and it's a lot of referencing the old show but raising the stakes of the old show by showing how these characters are working now now that it's three years later the predominant and prevailing theme of the early leftovers was we are three years from the event and we're going to start to wake up things are going to happen now that we're three years out three was a significant number for them and they thought something bad was about to happen because they were three years out globally not specifically not just in mapleton just in general something bad was about to happen because they were three years out we've added four years onto that uh one year through last season's events and three years through this time jump so if people were freaking out then man now we see what it's really like this much time later people like dean aren't shooting dogs anymore they're shooting cops so what's the point of bringing the bba back into this what's the point of bringing dean back is this just to like tie a season one loose end we're in the final season now let's make sure that we put a bow on things that are still floating out there that don't seem like they're going to be resolved but let's resolve them anyway is there a greater purpose than that to bringing dean back here just for the one and done appearance you know just presumably again though i guess we could see him at the hotel uh but you know at least in terms of this mortal plane of existence Dean is taken off the board, just shows up to rant and rave about the canine dog apocalypse that is on the way, that there is dog DNA in our government and probably in other places as well. Is that it just to have the rantings and ravings of a madman? Like, what's what's the point of having this story take up some time here in the final season? Probably for three or four things. One, I'm sure they wanted to to work with the guy again. They felt bad when they shifted to Miracle and they lost some of the people they were working with in season one that they liked. So I think that's part of it. I think the second part is what I said. I think it's a, a, a quick way for us to easily reference the stakes of this season and where things are at this point in the story by... Pulling a character from season one who was a certain way in season one, some type of way, and they're worse now. Uh, And so here we are with stakes raised. The third thing I would say is I do think that this serves to contrast to Kevin in a way, because in season one, Kevin was taken with this guy. He didn't even know if he was real. He thought he might be imagining him. And he was certainly taken with him such that when he needed in his madness to kill Patty or to get her out of town, this is the guy that he pivoted to. And they were, quote unquote, hunting buddies. This is the guy he shot dogs with. Like, this is somebody who crazy Kevin Garvey used to uh, commune with. Uh, And now normal Kevin Garvey, seemingly, uh, although there's the whole cheating death kind of thing. uh, Normal Kevin Garvey in this version of Miracle, the, the music literally stops in this scene when Dean is talking and he's going on and on about the peanut butter sandwich and the chain of evidence there is a lot of spooky music that's playing and then it's almost we don't hear a record scratch noise but it's just like the needle has been lifted off totally and and it stops completely and it's like Kevin realizes this guy's full of it it's very similar to when Nora Durst hears about a demon at the end of a scientific explanation in season two then she laughs she's like oh for a minute there I was worried you were going to actually have something Uh, and I think for a minute here Kevin was really worried that Dean was going 
going to actually say something that uh, that impacted him in a way. And then he realized midway through, no, you're nuts. So this shows us that a Kevin Garvey is no longer on the same plane with this guy, that something has changed or evolved within Kevin. He's not gotten worse like this guy. Uh, maybe Kevin's in closer to a position like Nora herself was in season one, where she's hiring people to shoot her so she can feel pain. Maybe Kevin is replicating that cycle of, uh, of death or whatever, but he's certainly not what he used to be, which is he used to be the guy that would just uh, get real kind of uh, his hands dirty with the BBA. And now he just doesn't take him seriously at all. And if anything, he feels pity for him and thinks he needs professional help. He goes to Lori to talk to Lori about Dean. He wants Lori to talk to him. So he is no longer the kind of guy who puts any stock in what he's saying. And he's now the kind of guy who takes pity on people that are crazy like that and thinks they need help. So I think it's also to show the evolution in Kevin, for sure. And then it's just fan service, right? It's a treat for people like you and I who have been pining for the BBA since he's been gone. Yeah, I just I get nervous around fan service for final seasons of shows, especially as created by Damon Lindelof. I, think that I that understand. Can, I think that that can be tricky territory. And so there's, there's a little part of me that's like, I don't know that we needed to check back in with the BBA. And to some degree, having him come back on the show here and just be an outright lunatic – Unless we want to put Dog Apocalypse on the board as far as real possibilities go, I'm willing to entertain that if you would like to track that throughout no. the season. That one dog does sneak away with the peanut butter sandwich at the end of the episode. He's destroying the evidence. Yeah, yeah. It's like, they're going to find <laughs> out. I must eat the sandwich. Yeah, and he's reporting back to uh, Senator, Senator Buddy. Buddy yeah. yeah, and being like, I got him. Don't I worry. Got him. It's I got him. I ate the sandwich. It's taken care of. We're st- our timetable is still unchanged. <laughs> 13 days. 13 days to go before the dog apocalypse. You know, I'm not... I'm not totally against it, but I mean, like if, if it's just to confirm that this guy is a lunatic and that like all of that dog shooting back in the day really was for nothing. Um, I don't know that you want to like acknowledge those days of season one, like the, the leftovers has gotten so much better than that. So it's a little bit confusing to me and just it, it like, I, I, I was just thinking like Shannon's inhaler, like that's the kind of thing that, that came to my mind, which is there's a scene in the final season of lost where two characters are walking through the woods and they stumble upon Shannon's inhaler from the first season. Like, Oh my God, we're back at the caves. And it's just this one moment of, no, like no reason to be on the show other than fan service. Uh, that kind of just you know, I I feel like why why even bother? We have the DVDs. We can always go back and watch that episode. So this this felt a little bit like that for me, where it's just like I don't know why we're checking in with the BBA again. I don't know that it's helpful to remind us of those days of the show of the earlier of the, of the earliest days, and especially to to say that that was all just the rantings and ravings of a total lunatic. I don't know what that buys us, but I really love your point about what it says about the stakes heading into season three. And and to take a character that is really, you know, very far away from the action of the show at this point, but is still recognizable within the universe of the show. And to have that person be somebody that you're illustrating that point with, I do think that that's kind of neat. Yeah, and I like that he blew a dog whistle. I feel like in season one, Kevin might have actually heard that dog whistle. Uh, and thankfully, he didn't hear. I also do like that, even though I, I'm, I'm st- staying with the point that Kevin can recognize right away that this guy's nuts and not be swept away by it after a time. I like that Kevin says, you're crazy, man. It's all in your head. And then he sees a flash from International Assassin. 
and it's like, oh, wait a minute now. So that's and it's a flash of him pushing Patty into the well. And it's it's like, OK, are you saying that to yourself? And are, is that a mantra that you're repeating to yourself about this very real to you event that you experienced when you drank some crazy potion and, and got buried in the ground? Uh, and maybe so maybe that there's some element of that that's successful with the BBA return, too, is that Kevin's bravado in that regard maybe is a little false that Kevin's grip on reality maybe is a little more tenuous than he might put forward to the world. He's not quote unquote fixed. He's still thinking about international assassin a lot. And it certainly comes up in this scene, even when he's presenting like he's not thinking about it. So I think that that's really, really interesting as well. And I think that that, I mean, that obviously, as I said, that comes up throughout. There are these flashes with Kevin that emerge throughout when we see him having these memories throughout when he gets baptized. As I said, we see him emerging from the bathtub. Um, We see all these things that are happening. So these are these are definitely uh, things that we see happening throughout the episode. And it's something that's on his mind and it's on his mind, but it's on the minds of Matt, John and Michael as well. What do you make uh, of the, the titular uh, book of Kevin Garvey, Josh? What do you make of what's happening here with Matt? This seems like the exact thing that Matt would do. Yeah, well, Matt is really the major character that I don't think that we've talked about a lot. I don't even know that we've really... I mean, we haven't talked too much about what Nora's up to right now. We've talked about what she's up to in the future. But let's stop down and focus on Matt, at least for now. Sure. Uh, and and he he is that type, absolutely. Going back to the very beginning of the show in that third episode of season one, which is Matt-centric, and you're just seeing this guy with his... Uh, you know, his desperation and his need to believe and seeing signs and clubbing people in the heads with rocks. And the whole episode last year where he ends up naked in the stocks and is just living out among the people. Uh, you know, this is this is a guy who loves to, to torture himself and to put himself through the tests and really go through the emotional and physical obstacle courses in the most extreme difficulty settings possible in order to... To come out the other side with even stronger faith. Um, he is he is somebody who we have at times I think been uh, a little leery of. Who is somebody who could be kind of shady and has has done some shady things once upon a time, um, but also could be somebody who who really seems like he has his heart in the right place. So I don't know. I'm. I'm myself not a particularly religious individual, so I'm like very kind of suspicious of anything that Matt would be pitching here, especially with uh, you know a Messiah figure who doesn't want to be considered as such. Seems like this might not be, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a violation on some level. But what's interesting to me more than anything is that John Murphy is into this. And, and it makes so much sense once he starts laying out the case wise. Like, I shot you in the chest. I shot you point blank. And you got up and you walked into town and you saved me. And you didn't even go to the hospital until the next day. And you were fine. And that was the second time you died in like a 48-hour span. Right. Um, and so he's now convinced. And now John Murphy, who uh, maybe people forget, but when you go back and you look at season two, John Murphy is uh, you know, agnostic, I think, is a nice way of putting John Murphy's outlook on the world. He's a very cynical man. Yeah, he's certainly hostile. There are no miracles in Miracle. There are no miracles in Miracle. And now this is a guy who believes in miracles in Miracle. And I, I love that. I think that with, with John, who's a character that I really loved in season two, I think that this episode alone had a lot of very natural payoff 
for where we left that character in season two as a guy who seemed really, really touched and in need of that helping hand of friendship that Kevin offers him in the season two finale. I think that we see the guy who got picked up, you know, in this season three premiere. I think we see the guy who's on the other side of that act of kindness and is now a pretty kind guy himself. Uh, I love that. And I and I think the fact that he is interested in this really does lend some credibility to the project of The Book of Kevin, um, where I, I don't know. What do you think? Is this going to be uh, – listen, if the world's about to end in two weeks, no one's going to read this thing anyway. Plus, there's only one copy and it's handwritten. Yeah, well, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, that is uh, – you're right. Like, that is 100 percent – who John would seem to be. And I think it's further evidence or evidenced by the fact that when Kevin is talking to him after that whole confrontation, John says, like, we can't be going through all of this for nothing. Uh, there's got to be something going on here. And Kevin points out, like, well, you're upset and you're really where you are because your daughter died. And John then points out, well, we don't know. She she did this before. Maybe she didn't die just because her dental records were there. I'm supposed to believe she died. And Kevin's kind of like, well, yeah. But it is a John who is searching for answers in light of some horrible things that have happened in his life. And I'm not that is not a in any way uh, a I'm not I'm not putting religion or faith on trial at all. I'm just to say it makes a lot of sense to me that after everything we saw that he would pivot a little bit and that he would say, listen, I've been holding out. There were no miracles in miracle. I was so hostile. I burned houses down for crying out loud. Uh, that's a new thing. I was on this escalating pattern of danger, probably ruined his, his marriage with Erica. They were already on the outs before Evie ever took off. And we know the things that have happened. We don't know with specificity, but we know John Murphy's been through some shit man and so we know ultimately that this is the kind of guy who if you put all that in front of him he might say you know what what else do I have like of course I'm gonna go for this like so I think that that's a very natural fit as you say I loved John Murphy in this episode. Uh, our friend Colin Stone uh, suggested to me that John Murphy was one of the MVPs of season two. I cannot disagree with that, but I love this version of John Murphy. He's wearing the circular glasses like Evie wore. He's wearing an interesting necklace. The shirt he is wearing when he comes into uh, the the church, he, he looks much more spiritual. He looks a lot yeah. more like a hippie. He's yeah. got his beard grown out, his hair's out a little. He does not look intimidating uh, like he did when he was in full firefighter burning houses down mode last season. He looks like a hippie. And maybe that's to put his psychic game over. And I should say, I'm not 100% sure that John believes everything is true. I don't know why they shred the money after the psychic scam that he and Lori run. I assumed he was shredding it because he was like, I don't want to profit from these lies. Right. And that it was more along the lines of they're trying to give somebody something like Lori and Tommy were trying to do. Like it's when, a true altruistic pursuit. Yes, it's a true altruistic pursuit that even ends with a Holy Wayne hug. Like that even ends with the thing where Lori is saying she's orchestrating the whole thing. You can hug him now. So this is maybe the better evolved version of what Lori was trying to do in season one, which is to give people something, not to take something away from them like the Guilty Remnant was doing, but to put something in its place like the Guilty Remnant was kind of doing. And she's trying to give them something positive to put in its place. And I'm sure she feels like she has a lot of penance. I mean, some horrible things happened in Mapleton with Lori. She was running over Guilty Remnant people with her car, Josh. That was so much fun. I loved it when she did that. One of her people killed herself uh, that she didn't give this proper closure to. So I think this may all be part of it. Uh, and 
So I don't know if John Murphy's believing in everything, but he certainly believes, I think, that you can use these powers for good as long as it's altruistic. And that seems to be what's happening in that scene. I'm fascinated by the evolution of John Murphy. Uh, There is no real evolution in Matt. As I said, this seems to be exactly the thing that Matt would do. Just that, like, his antics have finally gotten so ridiculous that even Mary is going to leave. And apparently he's been, like, keeping Mary on lockdown in Jarden because he's afraid if she leaves, she is not going to stay conscious anymore um what do you think about that is he right is he going to be proven right is something going to happen to mary and he's like i knew it no 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 i don't think so i don't i i think it's fascinating though when you start the episode with this family uh with a child and a father and a mother and the mother's faith is so fervent that eventually the child and the father leave her and leave her to do her craziness on top of the roof and that's very much a parallel to what's happening with with matt and mary and their child baby noah, noah. Baby i can't noah. wait to see how his arc plays out oh <laughs> i had not even thought of that snap uh so yeah that is uh that is 100 like a nice little again this is a show that's referencing itself it's referencing the creators other works and it's referencing back even within the context of this episode i love that i just love all of the back references that are happening and i think matt is very representative of that character but there's also this thing, uh, and we know Reza Aslan, uh, he was one of the advisors in season two, sort of their spiritual advisor. He was their spiritual advisor again on season three. He wrote a phenomenal book called Zealot, which is about his suggestions about what the historical Jesus would have been like. And he's using articles and information drawn from actual history and drawn from what is known about those times. And when you look at that, you can see a lot of this stuff with, with what's happening with Matt and early faith believers are, are 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 very similar to this no matter what the faith is there is some element of this and there is a lot of that in the kevin garvey story i can understand why a person of faith like matt after an event like the departure has happened might look at what has happened with kevin garvey and what he knows and be fascinated i love the scene where they're on the porch and kevin tells the story about how Lori. His her car sideswiped his police cruiser when he was 25 and Tommy was in the back seat and they met and they got married. And Kevin says, oh, I guess that was divine intervention. And Matt's like, what? His ears perk up, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and, and everybody's hanging on his every word in that story. And Kevin's even wearing a crown at that moment. So there have I mean, can you imagine if you thought Kevin Garvey was the Messiah and you're Michael and you're sitting in the office and your Messiah walks in and says, you watching porn? <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's not very messianic, you know, but this is there's a lot of messiantics going on here. Like, it's really it's really phenomenal to see if this is a religion that these guys might might found uh, the early days of it. And just sitting around on a porch, drinking some beers, telling stories about all the crazy stuff we got into in Guatemala. Yeah, 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 indeed. I think this is going to be the season of messy antics. Yes, and I love that. I love it. We had uh, we had plenty of messy antics with the BBA's head blowing up in this episode, so we, we're, we're due for some more. Yeah, we're due for some more. Um, should we talk through what's going on with Nora? What happened to her hand? Good question. Not, not sure. Uh, something is going on between the two of them. When Tommy is making his birthday wish, Tommy says, uh, does anybody have a wish? And he looks directly at Nora. Uh, and Nora's like, no, you go for it, hon. Uh, it's your wish. So there's that moment. There's Kevin looking at Nora playing with Noah inside the house. There's Kevin bringing that up to Nora. Uh, something happened to Lily. We Kevin mentions it to Jill. They talk about it and they talk about how Kevin and Nora don't talk about it. 
Obviously, don't think it was a secondary departure for Lily. That would be, I think, a much bigger story. Uh, probably, it seems likely, right, that maybe the mother of Lily came back into the picture somehow, Christine, uh, who abandoned her in season one and left her with Tommy. Uh, maybe she's back in the story somehow and wants her child back. That seems to be the most likely scenario to me. I suppose the child could have died. That's pretty mor- morbid and dark, though. Yeah, but that's almost more straightforward. Um, yeah, do you really want to bring Christine back into right, the show? That's a good right. point. Exactly. So I, I don't know, uh, but clearly, and of course, that's gonna that's gonna be a huge hit for Nora, who we saw. Right. You know, we saw her put life and limb on the line to save Lily in the season two finale when she's covering her body with her own body during the stampede on the bridge. Uh, so that's tough. That's tough that Lily is gone. And I think that that's, you know, that's the type of question that gets answered. You know, that's the that's a character question. That's a story question. That's not like a big picture mystery question. I think the the whereabouts and the the what happened with baby Lily, we definitely get that by the end of the season. And that certainly seems to be something that is weighing on Nora, at least in the present timeline of Nora. It seems to be the biggest thing going on with her. Yeah, my guess is that she punched someone or something with that with that hand or that wrist and broke it. That would be my guess. And uh and she's also it seems like she's back up to her old her old gig. Oh yeah, she's working at the yeah, she's working at the uh, the DSA or whatever. Yeah, she so she's like doing her old job. I love that. It's a great little character note, right? That Kevin Garvey's got his glasses on and he's looking down and he's speaking into a microphone to give his daily briefing and Nora shows up and she's just like, I don't need this mic. And she just talks in full voice. I love that. I love Nora Durst. She's amazing. I do I do worry about Nora Durst because of what happened at the end of the episode, Josh. I guess Sarah Durst is who I'm more concerned with. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I cannot wait to meet Sarah Durst. Like the, the full realization of like the, the Sarah Connor prophecy that's been surrounding Nora Durst this entire time she's just destined to be the last person standing everyone is going to leave her and she's going to be the queen of the apocalypse yeah uh that she's like furiosa like she's yes. like living in the the badlands in australia somewhere just uh in this sort of post-apocalyptic who knows i think we're assuming a Imperator little bit Dor- durst yeah yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, Morton Durst. Yeah, we're uh, we're we're projecting a little bit here. I think I don't know. We didn't see too many people around, and it seemed like people were sending messages via bird. And I didn't see any power lines going into the house where Nora was uh, before she rode the bike. She didn't drive a car or a truck. She rode a bike uh, to the place where a nun was gardening. Uh, Look, all of those things yeah. sound like post-apocalyptic, right? I think so, and I think like if the if the season begins with this you know this parable of these people who believed that the rapture was coming on a specific date and then it passed and it would never come on that date and the and the the person who keeps coming up to the roof and just getting you know doused in in rain uh, and and it still was not the rapture uh, and if the if the lesson there is supposed to be like. Uh, you know, you're, if you're sitting around waiting for the date to come, like it's not going to come. And there's this counting, you know, this countdown happening of 13 days to go and who knows how many days to go we'll get to next. I feel like the the suggestion there could be that nothing is going to happen. But that's what we got last year. You know, that's what we got with season two with the literal countdown on the, you know, on the scoreboard in the middle of Jardin and the possibility that this van was going to explode. But that's not what happened at all. Uh, so I feel like we've been there. My guess would be, 
you're not introducing a seemingly post-apocalyptic scene in the first episode of your final season unless you're really planning on going into the post-apocalypse in your final episode of your final season. I think that we're going to see something really cataclysmic happen to this world. And I think thematically that would really fit with everything that's been going on with the show as well. I agree. I have a few thoughts because I think that's a really fascinating line of thought. I will say it could be a swerve, right? It could be a swerve in that it could be, again, we're talking micro macro. It could be a thing where a cataclysmic event happens, but in a smaller way, in a way that affects Nora Durst and it affects people in the world. But this seemingly post-apocalyptic world that has healthy sheep and birds in it and nothing seems to be poisoned. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is a thing where ninety eight percent of the people departed. We only have two percent left. I don't know why we wouldn't have electricity. I don't know why she wouldn't have a car with gasoline. I don't know why the nun would be gardening. You can garden now. So these could all be swerves. But again, this is uh, this is there could be something horrible that happens in Nora Durst's world with Kevin, for example. And I point to this because something you were just saying really, really uh, struck a chord with me, which is that in season one, episode three, that's the Matt Jameson centric episode. The first one we see with him gambling and trying to get his church back and the guilty remnant buys his church. That episode's famously called Two Boats in a Helicopter. And I say famously because that's a story about somebody who was literally waiting on a roof for God to rescue them while there was a horrible flood. And they, a boat comes up and they say, no, I don't need it. God will save me. A boat comes up. I don't need it. God will save me. A helicopter comes up. I don't need it. God is coming for me. Then they die. And God says, what are you doing here? I sent you two boats in a helicopter and if you're waiting around for something to happen it maybe isn't going to happen what concerns me about these end of days types and these are the people that live in the world now mind you they want to hasten the end of days they want to hasten the apocalypse they want to bring things about so i worry that something could happen with people that are looking to hasten this apocalypse that could be a cataclysmic event on a smaller level that could impact Nora Durst. Like my concern would be some crazy person kills Kevin Garvey, Kevin Sr. Maybe it's Kevin Sr. who does it. uh, And maybe like 50 to 60 other people while they're all in Australia. And Nora Durst has to deal with all of that. Uh, I don't know. I just don't know if that's where we're going or if we're going for a larger society at large kind of thing. Uh, But it wouldn't shock me if there's just something horrible that happens in Nora's life and she's the only survivor of all the characters that we really know. Uh, and that would be a terrible thing, but I, I just not, I'm not all in on something happening to society at large. It would be crazy uh, if that happened. Uh, it just seems like the show going back to that. Well, I don't know. It's a very clear choice that they're going to have to debate whether, or I'm sure they did debate whether they wanted to make it or not. I mean, here's the thing to track is for, for somebody who has survived a really controversial final season of an otherwise really beloved show uh, and ending that show on a note that really didn't sit well with at least a very vocal minority, if not majority. Uh, for, For that guy to introduce a scene in your first episode that promises a trip to what really does appear to be some sort of post society world and to not go there in the final episode, you better have something really, really good there. Like it's such a it's such a tantalizing tease of an image to have this, you know, Nora 
aged, however much older she is, operating under a different name, living in a different country, living in a completely different existence, looking like she belongs on a completely different show. I don't know, Fargo, perhaps. Uh, you know, I, I think, <laughs> like, I, I think that to to have all of that out there, and then like she rounds a corner in the finale, and like she's in a greater civilization, and everything is totally, totally fine. That feels like that's going to be really, really disappointing and purposely misleading. And that would tell me that maybe this man has not learned all the lessons he needed to learn. But who knows? I mean, I I think that so much goodwill has been bought with season two of The Leftovers, especially. This was a really great episode of the show as well and has set up some very, very compelling mysteries for the final set of episodes of The Leftovers. So I'm all in. I'm just I'm just I'm just, you know, pointing out the possibility you Point know, taken. It's yeah. it's worth tracking because we yes. are in a final Lindelof season. No, you know? you're right. We're here again. And I have nothing but high hopes and all the expectation in the world that this is really going to work out. I think that he is, you know, that Damon Lindelof has been firing on all cylinders with this show since uh, really midway into season one. So I've got there's no reason to believe that this is going to be anything else except for the fact that historically it did not work out for a lot of people, at least. The first time he ended a show, so I don't know things things to keep in mind. As it's we're a specter, watching. it's looming over the show, hundred percent. And it's no a little bit of a that. spectator sport of like, can he do it? Can he do yeah. it this time? Can he land it? I hope he can. I I really believe he can. But I I do too. There is and the possibility. There is the possibility, and he's well aware of the mistakes that were made. And I I feel like the crazy thing is, I feel like one of the things the leftovers did well was change the conversation in that. They did not make this a show about demanding the answers. Uh, it was more about presenting answers in the form of questions that we ask ourselves about the way we see the world, right? And so in a show like that, where I feel like he had already moved the goalposts, as it were, and made it so that he could end the show without tying up this mystery narrative, he's changed the game completely with the end of this first episode where he has introduced this huge thing that he now has to pay off. And I think that that's the thing where you, okay, you said you weren't going to solve a lot of mysteries on this show and that we should let the mystery be. You literally told us that in season two, we all bought in. And now at the beginning of season three, what do we have? Just a big plate of mystery, right? Right at the end of the episode. And you're going to have to answer that as you point out, in a satisfying way. So you're already like complicating a floor routine that you didn't need to complicate. Like you had us, we were in, we were in on what you wanted to do. And now you've gone back and said, eh, I'm going to throw some mystery in here that you're going to want me to answer. So here we are. (laughs) Here we are. We're Lindelofing again, Josh. It's been so long. But I really think, and maybe I'm the idiot and I probably just am one anyway, but in this no. case, maybe maybe I'm the fool who's going to get fooled again. You know, may, maybe I'm the guy who's who's going to get sucker punched here and things are not going to add up. But this show has been so good for so long that I do think it's going to add up. And the fact that that scene is the final scene of this episode, that's why I'm, I'm so I, – I feel very confident that that's where we're going to go. We're, we're driving towards some sort of post, you know, whatever's coming in two weeks or whatever's going to happen in the next 10 years. The world is going to change greatly, and we're going to see what that looks like in the final episode. And that will be very cool. Or if it doesn't happen, man, they better have something else that's really awesome as well. Yeah, I, it did look like, for whatever reason, that there's bird trading going on. 
it did look like that nun handed her an awful lot of money, man. That was a big wad of money for birds, if you want my opinion. I suppose they could have all been singles, but it could also be that currency's pretty devalued. So I guess we're just going to have to wait and see how this plays out. I, it wasn't a hellscape. It wasn't like a, a post-nuclear apocalypse or anything like that. So it was a lovely, uh, it was a lovely landscape, almost like nature could retake a lot because people were gone i don't know uh it's something to speculate on i think we'll have to track it if we get any more information throughout the season i'm very curious we'll do a feedback show this week very curious uh, as to what everyone thinks of that scene and what the expectation game is because as you're saying like it's set up the 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 question is what do people think that that set up did that set up an expectation that a bunch of Horrible things are going to happen again. Some kind of cataclysmic event, as you put it. Or that there could be other explanations. I mean, what, it, what's the expectation? I, I, I'd love to hear that. For me, I'm not where you are in that I don't, need, I, I don't need to have that be what it looked like. If it was a little bit of a swerve, I'm fine with that. A little bit. A little bit I'm good with. But if it's like a, a great swerve, I'm going to be annoyed. Well, listen, I don't spend a lot of time in Australia. So I have no idea what parts of Australia are like. In my head, uh, Australia and New Zealand are very similar and New Zealand looks like Lord of the Rings therefore I can see Nora Durst riding a bike with birds and there are flocks of sheep and it's gorgeous that seems like Australia to me uh, I, I didn't I don't think that all of Australia looks like the opera house in Sydney uh, where it's like built up and there's uh, boats and cars and buildings and everything. I expect that a lot of Australia is like the outback and like uh, farms and rural. And because of that, I could see this easily taking place in a time and place where nothing has changed except for in the life of Nora Durst. And how does this nun know? All right. Well, I want I want I want Australian listeners to weigh in. Jaden James, I know you're listening to this. I want I want anyone out there who is from Australia and listens to our leftovers podcast could this be could she just round a corner and civilization is right there he has our boy adam listening i don't know we, we have to yeah if you're listening from australia let us know did that look like your uh, your hometown i'm sure there are places in australia that look like that so who knows we just it remains to be seen and uh, i it's a bold move for a show that uh does it that has that had managed i think to master the expectations game to stick its neck out like this but listen damon Lindelof is nothing if not bold uh, it's crazy that he's turned in just to make this show at all that's what i'm saying is like it was a very confident move it's like all right you just puffed out your chest so let's see if you can maintain let's see if you're backing that up so i'm i'm very excited you know don't do a final season of The Leftovers if you're not going to swing big and if you're not going to raise the stakes and if you're not going to, to, to aim for material that might be hard to get to. Um, I'm excited. I think it was a really exciting episode, but a really exciting ending, especially for me. All right, so we will have our feedback show coming up this week. Before we sign out here, Antonio, we do need to start wrapping up. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that we have to touch on on night one? We didn't mention Kevin's beard. Kevin's beard is awesome. It's the yeah. it's the kind of beard where you like you, you forget that he never had one to begin with. Yeah, again, peak Thoreau. Peak, peak Thoreau. Thoreau. Peak uh, Thoreau yeah. for sure. Um, but but yeah, you're right. And it, compared to Jesus, that beard, uh, the Reverend really likes it. Uh, so there you go. Uh, Matt loves it. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, there's a couple things just real quick, like bullet points. Uh, I really like, for example, that uh, that we don't know 100% who's making these flyers. I don't think it'll matter. I love that Kevin was like, there's nobody I know that likes flyers more than you, Matt. <laughs> like, yeah. That's a thing that's going to follow Matt around forever. Again, that's a little bit of fan service. It's a little bit of back referencing, but I love that. I would like to know, and we'll probably cover this on the feedback show when we have some time to do a little research and look into it, the speech that Matt is giving in the church. By the way, his church, very popular. So popular, his standing room outside the church. Great contrast to his church in season one where he couldn't get anybody to show up. 
he's he's reading a story uh, that I believe uh, is from the book of Daniel uh, because he's talking about Daniel a lot. And I looked up some of the quotes for it, so I know where it's from. I'm going to read about that before we record our next. But I'm curious to see ultimately where that goes and if there's anything there. Uh, I just think that all of the references back on this episode to other moments or to things that are evocative of the high notes of this series are fantastic. I love that when Kevin opens his closet, we see white shirts like the white of the guilty remnant that was in his international assassin closet. We see his cop uniform in there. Same thing. So there are all these references back that are that are very... I, like I said, just evocative. They're playing. They're 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 playing to familiar notes that you that you're aware of. And sometimes it's characters like the BBA. It's little flashes that Kevin sees, or it's just moments like him opening his closet uh, and make him remember. Uh, I love also the and we're, we can track these throughout the season. But one of my favorite games to play now is going to be tracking the things that happen to Kevin that these guys are going to assign some crazy value to. I love, for example, that he's baptized in the River Jordan, right. uh, not the River Jordan, uh, the River Jordan where he's he's baptized and that's a moment that matt can write about in a book and play up Uh, when he shows up to the church he's got glass in his hair and i just love matt probably imagining to himself like what could possibly have put glass in his hair that's crazy (laughs) i would love to know what my savior got into so i just i love this i really like this idea and it's actually there's levity in it because i like the, the 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 dream team if you will of matt and new John uh, and and Michael, like Matthew, John, and Michael. I love the three of them as Kevin's first apostles. I think that's fantastic. So I I'm really I that had I had a lot of fun. Just uh, this was just such a great episode, Josh. It was such a great 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 to be back with the leftovers. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm thrilled to be here. We only got seven more episodes left after this one. Shortened final season. That's kind of the thing HBO loves to do that. I think most shows really like to do that uh, really short final season. Uh, but we've only got eight of leftovers total. Seven more to go. Uh, plenty of podcasting. Certainly this week we will have a feedback show. And if this ends up working out, we'd like to do more of these. So that'll depend on you guys getting that feedback in. So do that. You can go to postshowrecaps.com slash feedback and send us your longer form feedback. Or if you have tweetable questions, you can tweet them our way. I'm at Round Howard. Antonio is at AC Mazzaro. Um, do we have a hashtag for this episode, Antonio? I feel like there's a lot to choose from. Uh, Sarah Durst is one. Uh, analog Choke is one. Uh, what else do you have? Well, Analog Choke is good. Wasn't our first ever eye choke? Wasn't that our first ever hashtag on a left? That was one of the early hashtags, yeah. I so should like, we go with Analog yeah, Choke? We could, we could go with a classic. We could go with hashtag Analog Choke. Or I liked uh, Messy Antics as well. I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> we're we're going to have to use that one again. Okay. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty good. All right, so, so either one will work for me. Yeah, if you want to tweet at uh, other people uh, or just tweet about our podcast episode, you can use that hashtag or you can send us that hashtag to know to let us know you got to the end of this like josh said we will be back this week to record our feedback show to make sure you never miss an episode of our podcast please do if you have not just take a couple moments and subscribe you can go to postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers itunes as josh said or postshowrecaps.com slash feed slash leftovers if you use another podcatcher app those subscriptions early in the season along with feedback honest feedback and star reviews really do mean a lot to us they help people see the podcast that's how the itunes charts are determined the more people that see it 
the more people that hear it. The more people that hear it, the more people that talk about it. And the more voices we have giving feedback, tweeting at us, the better this podcast is. Believe us. So we could just drone on here together without anybody ever talking to us, Josh. But it's much better when people are engaged. And we certainly appreciate everybody that's on the road with us to the end of The Leftovers here uh, for season three. Also droning on, that's a sensitive subject given the events of this episode of The Leftovers. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, indeed. All right, we'll be back later in the week with our feedback show of The Book of Kevin. Take care, everybody. Goodbye. Everybody is wondering what and where they all came from. Everybody is worrying about where they're going to go when the whole thing's done. But no one knows for certain, and so it's all the same to me. I think I'll just let the mystery be. Some say what's gone, you're gone forever, and some say you're going to come back. Some say you rest in the arms of the Savior if in sinful ways you lack. Some say that they're coming back in a garden, bunch of carrots and little sweet peas. I think I'll just let the mystery be. Everybody is wondering what and where they all came from. Everybody is worried about.